final investigator I met with was Dr. Irene Wapner, and to begin, she presented a patient from her practice. So this is a 47-year-old woman who presented with a palpable mass that was almost parasternal on the left breast, around the third intercostal space. And on imaging workup, she had a lot of microcalcifications extending towards the nipple in a radial fashion. And the initial core biopsy from the outside did not have definitive HER2 testing. So we repeated it and were able to prove that she had a HER2-positive cancer. Now, what was the size of the tumor and what was the ER? So she is ER-positive. Clinically, it was a little bit over two centimeters. And similarly, by ultrasound, it was very palpable. And that's actually what brought the patient in to be examined. And so once we proved that the tumor was truly HER2 positive, she began a course of neoadjuvant chemotherapy and trastuzumab. She did not receive pertuzumab. How long ago was this? It was before the pertuzumab was approved by the FDA. So her treatment began before that, and we did not change course midstream. So could we just, before we continue on with this case, just to take a breath I love this case. It's right on target in terms of a number of really critical issues for surgeons. Today, in general, if this patient were seen in a surgical practice or a community-based surgical practice, what do you think the most likely approach would be? I would hope it would be neoadjuvant chemotherapy. Based on what? On the HER2 positivity. Well, I guess my question is, in terms of the tumor size, why not just send the patient to surgery? So we are influenced in our decision-making since we have the option of putting the patient on a trial for residual disease after neoadjuvant therapy with TDM1 versus trastuzumab. We're participating in the NSABP B50, which is an international multicenter trial, looking at TDM1, which is amtanzine and trastuzumab versus trastuzumab alone for a whole year, 14 cycles. So we largely treat all our triple negatives and HER2 positives with neoadjuvant chemotherapy unless they're extremely tiny. From our perspective, it's a good prognostic indicator. And most importantly, a lot of these patients that have HER2 disease also have positive nodes clinically. And if you do surgery up front, then in those patients, you're really committed to doing a completion axillary node dissection, usually, because they'll have multiple positive nodes. So by giving neoadjuvant chemotherapy, it also opens up the possibility of doing sentinel node biopsy post-chemotherapy, and if the sentinel nodes are negative, avoiding a completion axillary node dissection. So I think there's an added benefit to the patient of having lesser surgery and potentially less morbidity if you do neoadjuvant chemotherapy. In addition, I may add, of course, which is in this case, the palpable tumor was relatively small, and if that were the only lesion the patient had, would have been amenable to lumpectomy. We had the other factor, which was that she had extensive microcalcifications that were difficult to quite assess completely 
how many of those microcalcifications were malignant versus not. So in patients that have a single lesion or a large lesion, if you give neoadjuvant chemotherapy, you potentially make them better candidates for breast conservation should they choose that. I think what we need to help surgeons understand is that we lose nothing by doing the neoadjuvant treatment, that we may benefit the patient, that we can lessen some of the morbidity that the patients experience ultimately that there's more to lose by doing surgery up front than delaying surgery. And the fact is, oftentimes, especially with patients that may not be good candidates for lumpectomy up front, when you embark in the surgical treatment and mastectomy and reconstruction, you're actually delaying the initiation of systemic therapy easily by six to eight weeks. And I don't think that helps patients who have this more aggressive biology. So I think it's proper and it makes a lot more sense to the systemic therapy will address the systemic risk and at the same time will treat the patient locally. And I think that the information that we gain from seeing how well this tumor reacted and how much of it responded to the treatment is really a very valuable point, I think, to the extent that we're going to be doing more and more of this in the future. This message about HER2-positive disease and neoadjuvant therapy is sort of recent when you think about it. It was just a year ago that pertuzumab was approved in the neoadjuvant setting. Do you think this development has reached the practicing surgeon? I do see a lot of patients who come for second opinion, who come from a great distance. They don't have access to academic centers or big hospitals. And I'm quite amazed that still today, in 2014, there's a perception, certainly of the public. I don't know to what extent physicians contribute to that perception by giving the patients a sense that they need to rush into surgery as the first step. And I think that we're really moving away from that, that I think the future is going to be a lot more neoadjuvant therapy, because then we will be able to make better judgments and institute better treatments for patients who do not have a complete pathologic response. And I think that really comes up here with this patient. What happened? You said that she was managing the pre-pertuzumab being approved for neoadjuvant therapy, so she got chemo-trastuzumab, which is still pretty good therapy. What happened when she got that therapy? So she had five millimeters of residual invasive cancer, and she had extensive DCIS that measured somewhere in the neighborhood of about nine centimeters. And at that point, she decided, of course, that she had no choice but a mastectomy. But We offered her a nipple-sparing mastectomy. We've been offering nipple-sparing mastectomies to patients even with more extensive lesions and who are undergoing neoadjuvant therapy as long as we can achieve negative margins. And, of course, all her sub-arealer, sub-nipple, intranipple biopsies were negative, so we felt comfortable in pursuing that path with her surgically. And because of this large size of her breast and desiring symmetry, she ultimately had bilateral mastectomies, and she had a first-stage tissue expander reconstruction. What about sentinel node evaluation in this patient, or nodal evaluation, what was done and when? So this was a very medial lesion. Her clinical exam, her axilla was negative, and ultrasound interrogation, the axilla before treatment was negative, and the sentinel node biopsy 
after neoadjuvant chemotherapy was also negative. So she had mastectomy, nipple sparing mastectomy, and sentinel node biopsy. Any comment on this issue of timing of sentinel node biopsy in patients getting neoadjuvant therapy? Is it routinely accepted by everybody that it should be done afterwards? Well, I think the data is relatively novel, and I'm not sure to what extent it's practiced in the community. I think that larger centers and surgeons, especially breast surgeons who are more involved with what's happening in our field, are implementing it. I must say that I have offered sentinel node biopsy for a long time. I participated on the B27 trial, and with Terry Mamunis, when we were training for the sentinel node biopsy, we were allowed to practice on patients who were on this neoadjuvant trial by doing sentinel node biopsy and completion axillary node dissection. So actually, I've been doing it for a long time. I think the tendency after neoadjuvant chemotherapy is to be much more thorough. I always use radioisotope and blue dye. I take any node that is you know, palpably enlarged, and I'm somewhat suspicious. And I think that we should be offering patients. There is no reason to remove additional negative notes. It does not benefit the patient and certainly will give them morbidity. What options do you think about in patients who have positive sentinel nodes after neoadjuvant therapy? Well, I think that there we default to the traditional completion axillary node dissection. There are efforts ongoing, and it certainly was part of the data of the Z1071 trial that Judy Bowie presented, where in some institutions, if there is a positive node pretreatment, they will tag it and mark it by putting it, if they biopsy an axillary lymph node and they mark it, so then if it's positive, the surgeon has another way of verifying the extent of the response to the chemotherapy, right? If you begin with a clinically positive node and you prove that there's tumor in there, you'd like to be sure that at the time of surgery, you remove that node. And I think that in all clinical trials where we do that, we like to verify that we've removed that initially positive node. But I think once you find one positive node after neoadjuvant therapy, that the course that must be pursued is completion axillary node dissection level one and level two. And what about the patient who starts out with a positive axilla on biopsy and then afterwards is negative on sentinel node? So I think that if the lymphatic mapping and sentinel node identification procedure occurs successfully, that there is no doubts to the surgeon that indeed the procedure itself is working and that they can easily find a hot in a blue node or they remove the node that was initially positive. We're actually doing something interesting, which will be published shortly in Annals of Surgical Oncology. Instead of placing a clip in the node that is biopsied pretreatment, we're using a sterile black ink tattoo to make it easier for the patient and for the surgeon to visually identify the node that was biopsied before treatment and not having to go through the procedure of wire localizing a clip in the axilla. So I think as long as you remove the node that was initially positive and you remove all other sentinel nodes and examine the axilla thoroughly 
to be sure that you're not missing any hard, suspicious notes that may not turn blue or hot because the lymphatic channels are clogged up, so to speak, with tumor cells. So if you do a good, adequate sentinel node biopsy procedure, resection, then I think it's safe to, if all those nodes turn out to be negative, to not go on to completion axillary node dissection. What about radiation therapy? I knew you were going to ask me that. <laughs> well, that's a trial, right? Yes. I think there's two ongoing trials. One, which is led by the NSABP and RTOG or NRG, where patients who began as node positive, and if they convert to node negative after neoadjuvant chemotherapy, that they're being randomized to axillary radiation versus no radiation. And then there's another ACASOG trial where patients begin as positive and remain positive after neoadjuvant therapy. And I don't recall exactly. It's an issue of field radiation because they do some radiation on all patients, but they do additional radiation and those are remain positive. You said this lady, she had a nipple sparing procedure? Yes. And what was the cosmetic outcome, and what in general are you seeing in terms of cosmesis? She really has had a terrific outcome because her breasts were very large and pendulous. And I must say, we are not turning many patients down from nipple-sparing mastectomies, and we're doing some sophisticated techniques to help them be able to achieve this because in the end, the normal nipple or real or complex is unique and plastic surgeons cannot reconstruct a nipple or real or complex to look as nice as mother nature provides for the most part. So we are in some patients doing a stage procedure where we devascularize a large portion of the skin. Armando Giuliano's group reported that several years ago in the surgical literature. And then several weeks later, we then go on to complete the mastectomy. And depending how the skin flaps look, we usually tend to go to a tissue expander so that we don't put much pressure on these skin flaps that are thin and that are large. And we allow the perfusion to improve over several weeks. And then a plastic surgeon will either replace the tissue expander with a permanent silicone implant or do a The stage procedures that we do like that are usually when we use implants. When we do autologous tissue, depending on the size of the envelope, we tend to just do it in a single stage because you provide the skin flap with a vascularized bed underneath, and we tend to have fewer ischemic problems of the skin flap. You mentioned that this lady had a little bit of residual disease And before you were talking about the NSAPP trial, the Catherine study, which has this unique opportunity to receive TDM1, a really exciting agent. Did she go in that trial? Yes, she did. And she was randomized to a TDM1 arm. Awesome. Yeah. When you look at a patient like that, she might have asked you, at that point, after she had surgery, you know, traditionally, a patient like this would get trastuzumab, for example, hormonal therapy also since she was ER positive. But globally, what were you thinking about in terms of her risk for recurrence? Well, I know in simple terms that it's greater than if she had had a complete pathologic response. I tell them that, especially for the ones that are ER positive, that they will still be receiving ongoing therapy 
and that we hope that these other targeted treatments that we're continuing for the rest of the year, or in the case of hormonal therapy, five to 10 years, will help us secure a relapse-free survival for them. So I'm always encouraging them, and I always encourage my patients whenever I can, aside from the fact that I'm the institutional PI for B50, to participate in clinical trials because they benefit from the participation of women in the past in similar trials. So I always encourage the patients to consider being on a trial. But I mean, globally, as you look at patients who have residual disease, you know, in general, what kind of risk of recurrence are you looking at? So slightly higher local recurrence, I think. Then in general terms, it's not easy to quantify that. It's higher than if you have a complete pathologic response. Do you think it's comparable to a patient with node positivity from the traditional non-neoadjuvant approach? I think it can be in some instances, but in general terms, patients who've had residual disease, whether it's in the breast, in the breast, in the lymph nodes, just do worse. I think the issue with the lymph nodes, well, at presentation, patients with node-positive disease have a much higher risk of distant recurrence. And I think that patients who begin with node-positive disease undergo neoadjuvant chemotherapy and have residual disease in the breast and the nodes do quite poorly. Those that have only some residual disease in the breast, there's a cohort that we look back at the results of the B18 trial, we know that the patients who had a partial response tended to behave clinically in a more similar manner to those that had no response at all than those that had a complete response. So Neil, I'm not sure what the answer is. I would tell you that for a triple negative disease, I think it's a very ominous sign having residual disease, whether it's in the breast or in the lymph nodes or both. It certainly would vary based on the type. So this lady went into the Catherine study. How far into it is she? How is she doing on the TDM1? She's doing terrific, and she looks great physically. She's very, very pleased with her appearance, her tummy tuck, and her breast reconstruction. It looks quite natural and quite similar in size to what she looked like before surgery. So she's very pleased. And her hair is growing back and She's not having any significant side effects, perhaps a little bit of fatigue, but that's it. Did she have any hair loss with the TDM1? Or I guess she had it with the pre-op. In other words, she started losing her hair with the chemo. Right, she had. And now it's growing back on TDM1. Yes. As far as I can tell, it looks like it's growing back. Yeah, because it seems that TDM1 doesn't generally cause alopecia or other chemo side effects, which is one of its main advantages. So I want to go on to another case of yours, but first I have to ask you, because I rarely find people who've published on male breast cancer, and I see none of your cases are men, so i got to ask you about a couple of papers that you were involved with. One, poor compliance with breast cancer treatment guidelines in men undergoing breast-conserving surgery, and the other one you were involved with was outcomes of partial mastectomy male breast cancer patients. Can you tell me about this work and sort of what's new with male breast cancer? So these were two studies that I did with a very energetic resident that I have, Jordan Cloyd, and he likes to work with the SEER data. So it was a couple of years ago, so we had two male breast cancers in a row, one of which was quite thin and had a standard mastectomy, and another gentleman who was much more on the heavier side and who we performed a lumpectomy, you know, 
He had significant gynecomastia, so we performed a lumpectomy and breast irradiation on that gentleman. So I think by looking at the CR guidelines, it's a little bit confusing. It seems that there are many men who receive only what we would call a lumpectomy and then don't receive radiation afterwards. So in that aspect, we felt that their treatment may very well not be meeting NCCN guidelines. And it was mostly with the older men that were not receiving adequate treatment. What I've noticed from a surgical perspective is that this may not have too much to do with the biology of disease, that men also don't want to be deformed. And I've been surprised in the past and also through some of my colleagues who see male breast cancer once in a while. It's not that common. Even in a big tertiary center, we don't see that many cases a year, usually a handful, is that some men are not too enthusiastic about having mastectomy. And a lot of men do not necessarily want to lose the nipple or realer complex. It does seem to them that it's a deformity. So I don't think that lumpectomy should be discounted for men as long as you can achieve negative margins and you don't need a wide margin. And I think that we should be conscientious enough of at least offering men the opportunity to see plastic surgery and to perhaps seek some sort of nipple or real or complex reconstruction if they have a standard mastectomy. So let's talk about your next patient, the lady with extensive quasi-palpable DCIS. Quasi-palpable, I like that term. (laughs) (laughs) I think surgeons face different challenges in medical oncologists. So we see premenopausal patients, and you examine them, and then you find an area that feels a little bit more prominent, of a more prominent ridge. And then you look at the mammogram, and there's calcifications over an area, sort of patchy and somewhat discontinues of an area of, let's say, six or seven centimeters. And you have two core biopsies several centimeters away, and they both show DCIS. So I think the question for the surgeon is, how do you approach a patient like this? You have sort of minimal sampling of a large area. Of course, the easiest thing to say to the patient is have a mastectomy because there's so much to evaluate here that this lumpectomy would deform your breast. And I've been in this situation many times, and I usually try to attempt to remove the area that appears abnormal on the mammogram just to be able to evaluate better the extent of disease. And many times I've been surprised at how well the breast can appear even after a large excision. I think that many times when we just look at the imaging studies, it appears that it involves a much greater proportion than the breast that with some soft tissue mobilization techniques and oncoplastic surgery, you can take a large segment of the breast and still retain a very normal, cosmetically pleasing looking breast. So in this case, we did that. And the other concern is when you have an area in a somewhat dense breast with many calcifications, you never really know whether you're going to find invasive cancer or not. So those were two of the issues on my mind before we operated on this patient. So we did do a lumpectomy with this bracket wires and a sentinel node biopsy. The sentinel node biopsy was negative. And I do do sentinel node biopsy even in the face of diagnosis of DCIS when I'm dealing with something that is 
DCIS, impalpable or potentially palpable, and very extensive. I think those are my two criteria for doing sentinel node biopsy and DCIS. So it turned out that she has an area of 6.9 centimeters of DCIS, no invasion, and several margins, focal margins, where it's almost at the margin, less than 0.1 millimeters. So we're contemplating what to do. These lesions sometimes are funny. They're more like a hot dog that they extend along sort of a lobe, but they're not very wide. And her cosmetic appearance of her breast is good. So we are contemplating a re-excision or more than likely she will go on to have mastectomy. And yes, I have offered her nipple-sparing mastectomy. Anything else you want to say about this patient? Well, one question I think in my mind is even if we go on to mastectomy with a 7-centimeter area of extensive DCIS in the breast and negative nodes, I often put these patients on adjuvant tamoxifen afterwards because I'm concerned that no pathologic examination is at perfect. And 1% of patients, even in the B17 lumpectomy trial that were treated by lumpectomy only, developed distant metastasis. What were the numbers there? 1%. And the lumpectomy only arm of the B17 trial, no radiation, no adjuvant tamoxifen. When you do the 20-year follow-up, 1% presented with distant metastasis. So it's a little bit hard to know that it may not have been because of another contralateral invasive cancer, but I think that there may be some role in considering adjuvant tamoxifen, especially if the patient is not doing anything with a contralateral breast. So the final issue I wanted to ask you about is the so-called Calore study that you are very much a part of with the NSABP that demonstrated the value of so-called pseudo-adjuvant chemotherapy after surgical excision of a local recurrence. So the Calor study was a multinational collaboration between the NSABP and the International Breast Cancer Study Group and BIG, where we looked at invasive local regional recurrences, isolated invasive local regional recurrences, following the treatment of a primary invasive breast cancer. So patients were eligible if they had an isolated recurrence, no evidence of distant metastasis. Patients with supraclavicular recurrences were excluded because at the time the trial was conceptualized, supraclavicular recurrences were considered stage four disease. So patients that enter in the trial were stratified according to their hormone receptor status of the recurrence whether they received chemotherapy or not in the past, and the location of their recurrence. And the patients were randomized to receive chemotherapy or no chemotherapy. All hormone receptor positive patients were required to receive an endocrine treatment. So the recommendations for patients who had ipsilateral breast tumor recurrences was salvage mastectomy, And we required gross excision of recurrent tumor, whether it's in the axilla or in the chest wall. Patients were allowed to have microscopically positive margins. Anyone who had microscopically positive margins were required to have re-radiation, at least 40 gray. The only patients that could avoid re-radiation were those that had salvage mastectomy. 
Indeed, 19% of patients who had an IBTR or ipsilateral breast tumor recurrence went on to have a second lumpectomy procedure and re-radiation some. And how is this translated to what you all are doing in practice? You know, I don't even think you all were able to look at HER2 in this situation. So globally, I mean, are you just basically looking at this as a new primary from, you know, when you see local recurrence in terms of whether to treat or not? Or how do you go about putting this into practice? Actually, my own personal perspective is that it's very hard to make the argument about a second primary. I know a lot of people speak in those terms in the breast. There was a recent consensus panel through the Netherlands, the Maastricht Group, which will also be published in a few months in JNCI, where we all felt that we did not have the sufficient biological genomic tools to be able to characterize a recurrence in the breast as a recurrence or as a new primary. So what the Calor study showed was that patients overall, there was a benefit to adjuvant chemotherapy at the time of a local regional recurrence. The patients that benefited the most clearly were the ER-negative patients, where overall in the group, there was an absolute improvement with chemotherapy of 12% in terms of overall survival and disease-free survival. But the subgroup that benefited the most and most clearly were the ER-negative patients with a 68% improvement in disease-free survival. So we are, and of course, I am sort of, I hoist the flag of the Calor study in our own institution, and we are recommending patients who have local regional recurrences, especially that you're negative, adjuvant chemotherapy treatment, and usually a change in endocrine therapy at the time of recurrence if they are on endocrine therapy already or initiating endocrine therapy again for the ER-positive patients. And you're right, there were very few patients, a total of seven patients that had any HER2-directed therapy in the study, so we could not comment on the issue of an adjuvant anti-HER2 treatment. But in clinical practice, patients who are HER2-positive and have an isolated recurrence, and especially those that are going to receive chemotherapy, we would consider instituting an anti-HER2 therapy at this time. So your colleague, Dr. Norman Walmark, on this series not too long ago sort of almost knocked me out of my chair when he said he usually is sending oncotypes on local recurrences. Any thoughts about that? Well, I've done it, and I've shown this at... I did a very small study of eight patients, well, that I was able to get the blocks in eight patients of the primary and the recurrence and did the oncotype DX on them. And five out of the eight came out in the same score category. I think that, you know, the patient has never had it done. It might be, since we don't have a clear answer in terms of the ER-positive patients in the Calor study as to whether they benefit from chemotherapy or not, I think that the Oncotype DX represents some additional information that the physician can use to help themselves in making a decision and recommendation to the patient. I think they're not easy decisions. I mean, we always struggle in knowing how much ER-positive patients benefit from adjuvant chemotherapy. 